Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 12 in our series for 2021. And today's date is Friday, April the 23rd. First, I'll be talking to Aaron Applebaum, a partner at Israeli startup Mismar Ventures, which identifies the best companies and entrepreneurs in Israel and helps them succeed in the global marketplace. And I'll be talking to Indeed economist Callum Pickering about Australia's latest unemployment figures. But now, let's talk to Aaron Applebaum. Aaron, it looks like uh, Ms. Ma is teaching Silicon Valley a few lessons. Hopefully. I mean, we, we, we certainly take lessons from Silicon Valley in their decades-long success in early-stage startups. But there's something I think that Israel definitely can teach Silicon Valley about being lean, mean, iterative in a way that when we have these sort of downturns, Israel can sometimes come out on top. I'd love to love to go into some of the, the unique differentiation of Israel. Right. Okay. Okay. Well, uh, tell us uh, what makes uh, Mizma so distinctive as a venture capitalist. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Absolutely. So, so first off, Mizma is a concatenation of uh, two Hebrew words. Um, one, Mizrah, the other, Ma'arab, which means east and west. Uh, and the, the, the most immediate interesting thing about, about Mizma is that we're a, true, a truly global fund. So 
Um, one of my partners uh, is in San Francisco uh, in the greater Bay Area. And one of my partners is in Hong Kong. And one of my partners is on flight between Manhattan and Tel Aviv. And so we have access to the large global corporates and capital markets of East Asia, of Hong Kong and China and Japan and Korea. We have access to um, the intellectual capital of uh, California, Silicon Valley. We have access to the customer base uh, within New York, the uh, insurance companies, the healthcare um, industry, the banks, all under one small roof so that when a company takes capital from MISMA, what they're really getting is a truly global network. That's quite extraordinary. Now, uh, what are the uh, major investment areas that you see happening now? Yeah, so, so, so with this, this global team, we've actually focused very specifically on one geographic mandate. So MISMA only invests in early stage Israeli technology companies. And because of that, we focus on areas for which we believe Israel has some sort of unfair competitive advantage. So when we think about, about Israel, we think about a lot of the uh, IP, a lot of the intellectual capital, a lot of the growth engine uh, is born of um, successful uh, military service. And because Israel is small and isolated amongst uh, uh, an otherwise tough geography with much larger, better equipped adversaries, the advantages of Israel are in the collection of data, the intelligent usage of data to create actionable insights. So MISMA, looking at that, has focused on AI, has focused on big data, has focused on cryptography, cybersecurity, cloud, serverless, DevOps, deep technologies that are rooted in, in hard engineering, bits and bytes, ones and zeros, as opposed to disruptive business models, uh, say like a marketplace or you know, another area where, where MISMA's chosen to focus, again, by, by virtue of, of this unfair competitive advantage I spoke of, is in the area of mobility. Israel has never successfully produced a car. The, the centers of excellence there are Japan, Germany, the United States. But if you look forward to the next 15, 20 years of, of transportation, it has a lot to do with machine-to-machine -machine communication, a lot with connectivity, zero latency communication protocols, cybersecurity once our cars are all connected to the internet, sensors, sensor fusion, radars, all things for which Israel does excel. Um, and because of that, we've taken these deep technologies where Israel is amongst the world's best and applied it to an aging, disrupted uh, industry like, like the automobile industry. Right, so uh, very much about smart cars. Sure, smart, connected, autonomous, electrified, shared. So it's, it's it, the entire trillion dollar automobile or automotive mobility world is, is, getting, is getting turned on its head. That's quite extraordinary. And, and how many do you have working for Musma? So we're currently five. Only so we're five? A very lean, we're a lean team. <laughs> um, but counted, counted among those five is a 35-year IBM professional. So a gentleman who uh, was global chief compliance officer, general manager of IBM Israel, and global head of uh, all of IBM's uh, fintech platforms. We have former vice chairman of JP Morgan, 
a woman who ran all of investment banking Asia. We have a former general partner from Lightspeed Ventures, uh, an $8 billion Silicon Valley behemoth of a fund. I come from the hedge fund world, uh, having done structured finance both in uh, New York and in Washington, D.C., predominantly focused on cybersecurity enterprise software. And we have an F-16 pilot with a background in mathematics and computer science. So while we're a very lean team, um, we have very complementary skills, and it's none of our first rodeos, so uh, we, we, we punch above our weight. Well, it's certainly, you're certainly investing in areas that are so important now, aren't they? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, you know, the, the, the needs of, of our job fundamentally is to look 25 years out, figure out what's going to happen, work our way backwards to figure out what technologies are going to get us there, and then identify management and identify people who can captain those ships. And the world is changing. Cars are going to drive themselves and packages will be delivered via drones and, you know, the, the, the level of connectivity between people. So, so absolutely. Tell me, I mean, how do you actually go and find companies or, you know, when they apply to you, how do you actually select them? What's the process you go through? Sure. Yeah. So we see, uh, we see about a thousand companies a year, uh, uh, can be a little bit more sometimes. And we start from 30,000 feet up and say, is it an area we're interested in? You know, do we think that, that, that the addressable market is large enough? Do we like the management team? Can we provide value as a fund, right? There might be a wonderful company that does biopharma and it could change the world. We don't have the expertise and so won't spend the time. So we do the initial screening based on, on market need, market size, and our expertise. Then we drill down to understand how competitive the market is. You may have a really good idea, but if there are dozens or hundreds of others doing it very well and succeeding, then the differentiation might not be worth our investing capital. So we look at the competitive landscape. We look at the human capital. It's a huge point for us to understand okay, maybe the idea is good, maybe the addressable market is big, maybe the competition isn't, uh, isn't overwhelming, but are you the right person based on your know-how, academics, stick-with-itness, drive, temperament, are you the right one to, to go through the roller coaster of building a company? And once we have all of those uh, ducks in a row, we, we, we then go into a process of deep diligence where we look into the financials, we look into the traction, we speak to customers, we look at pre revenue projections and challenge all their assumptions, legal diligence, quality of earnings, and really pick apart the business to understand its health. And when all of those things make sense, we, we vote on, uh, on the, the company as, as, as a team and by virtue of a, a, a unanimous decision, we'll, we'll go forward. So in view of all the companies that you survey, how many would actually make the grade? Uh, <laughs> a very low yield. It's around 1%. It's actually a little less than 1% yield on, on companies that make it to a certain point. So uh, I've been with Misma now for three years. We've seen about 2,500 companies and uh, we've only invested in 21. So, uh, you know, we're, 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 we're rather selective. And, uh, and, and most venture funds are, uh, but, but yeah, it's, 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 it's pretty daunting. It's, uh, well, 20, 21 out of 2,500, that's less than 1%. It's 0.1, right. <laughs> that's quite extraordinary. 
It's one. It's one percent. It's one percent of um, of the ones that make it to uh, make it to the diligence phase. So most of the companies, I'll take a phone call and pass immediately. So they don't even enter. They, they enter the pipeline, so to speak. But but you know we don't spend much time. What is it about Israel that produces so many IT focused companies? So many leaders here. Yeah. So so it's a fewfold. So so one, as I had mentioned, it's it's a it's a, a very operational military that deals with life and death uh, decisions and existential decisions daily. So it's not to say other militaries don't, but a country of 9 million that's in a, a tumultuous region, there's no margin for error when you uh, collect data. There's no margin for error when you extract insights and business intelligence. There's no margin for error, error when you build a new sensor that has to collect. And so it's, it's the military. It's a very, very good established university system. So uh, universities relatively inexpensive, very technologically driven with Tel Aviv University and the Technion and Haifa and Ben Gurion and Hebrew University uh, on a per capita basis. The number of engineers, the number of PhDs is in the top decile globally. So it's, it's human capital mixed with necessity. So uh, we, we should actually be watching out very closely for Misma and seeing what else you produce. What do you see in the year, years ahead? Where do you see uh, technological investment heading? Yeah, so, so one, one theme that I, I'm particularly intrigued by is, is this notion that the world is creating more data than ever before. Actually, I think it was last year, two years ago, where machine generated data surpassed human generated data and the volumes are are growing exponentially and moore's law of of storage and compute you know doubling every other year and costs going down is dead so so we have to store this data we have to use this data we have to make it functional and existing hardware the existing silicon infrastructure um, isn't good enough. And so we've seen this, this hyper-specialization of CPUs turning to GPUs and TCUs and um, spinning disks going to flash to be more readily available and the ability to query data lakes more efficiently. And it's a whole architecture, you know, driven by the Intels and the NVIDIAs and the Googles of the world, but they can't innovate fast enough. And I think what we'll see is we'll start to see dedicated hardware, dedicated ASICs, dedicated co-processing units for acceleration that are for specific tasks. So we'll have hardware that's focused on AI and hardware that's focused on the mobility sector and hardware that's focused on, on, on graphics and gaming. If you look at some of the recent successes in Israel, Habana Labs uh, was acquired for $2 billion before uh, they made an ounce of revenue before a single dollar just because their novel approach to building hardware. And so I think we're going to have a, a, a revolution, not just an evolution in, in AI compute and data storage. Well, that'll be quite something to watch out for. And uh, well, Aaron, thank you very much for your time. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'd, I'd be happy to answer, you know, anything else you have about any questions you have about Israel or venture or investing or, you know, I'm uh, feel free to reach out anytime or if there's anything top of mind, uh, you know, I'm a, a, an open book and happy to share. And now let's talk to Indeed Economist Callum Pickering. 
Well, Callum, the unemployment rate has gone down to 5.6%. What's your view about it? Well, it was a really strong report. I mean, you really have to dig deep to find any disappointing figures at all in the um, in the March numbers. I mean, the unemployment rate declining to 5.6% was sort of the, the big headline. But the, the underemployment rate, which is important as well, that declined to 7.9% from 8.5% a month earlier. So that was that was a really good result as well. That means that the people who are finding jobs are finding pretty good jobs. They're finding the hours that they want in, in greater numbers than they have in, in the recent past. So, yeah, overall, just a, a really uh, strong uh, employment print. I was very surprised by the underemployment rate. I mean, that's the lowest it's been in, what, uh, something like seven years, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Lowest since March uh, 2014. Um, Australians ha- Australia has had an underemployment problem for a, for a long time. Um, we don't tend to talk about it too much. We tend to focus more on the, the unemployment rate. But there have been a lot of Australians for a number of years now that just haven't been getting the hours that they, they want. You know, they're working 15 or 20 hours a week, but they prefer something closer to a full-time schedule. Um, and the fact that it has declined to its lowest level in seven years is certainly a, a real bright spot for the economy. Um, it certainly indicates that the economy is heading in the right direction. It indicates that the recovery is creating, you know, high-quality jobs, you know, full-time jobs, jobs that are providing enough hours uh, f- to meet the, the demands of workers. Uh, but, uh, I mean, one of the interesting parts about the uh, latest figures is that uh, full-time employment was actually not as big an increase as part-time employment. Yeah, that, that is correct. So in March, uh, full-time employment did actually decline by uh, 20,800 people. But I think that number sort of needs to be understood in the context of what we've seen um, over the past six months. So in the five months leading up to, to March, uh, full-time employment increased by 360,000 people, which is just a really strong number over that period. And around two-thirds of the employment gains over the past six months have been full-time roles. So while full-time employment did take a a dip in March, it's not something that I would probably read too much into because we have seen such strong full-time job creation over the past six months. And that is one of the reasons why we have seen, um, you know, things such as the underemployment rate um, decline to a relatively low level. Well, I mean, on one hand, uh, the uh, part-time boost would be good because uh, it would incorporate a lot of groups that would have otherwise been struggling. Wouldn't that be true? Yeah, so one of the things that um, has been obvious throughout the recovery is that it has been somewhat uneven. There have been some groups in society that haven't necessarily uh, felt that that strong recovery. And two of those groups have been younger people, so people under the age of 35, um, where employment has been quite weak. And so that creation of a lot of part-time jobs helps to stimulate that segment of the economy because obviously young people do tend to disproportionately hold part-time roles for a variety of reasons, including the fact that many of them are um, in either high school or or university education. The second group that really benefits is lower-income earners. So this is a group that the recovery for lower-income earners has lagged behind higher-income earners um, over the past um, six months or so. Um, So the creation of a lot of part-time roles there as well, is definitely going to help those lower income earners. So, you know, the, the creation of around 90,000 um, part-time jobs, that's that's a positive um, for me coming out of the March numbers. But on the other hand, the decline in uh, full-time employment, I don't know. I mean, it tells me that maybe uh, companies aren't 
yet earning enough to put on more full-time workers. I mean, the latest profit reporting season was, well, patchy. I mean, some some companies shot the lights out and others were struggling. Yeah, there's a, certainly a, a fair bit of... Uh variation in company performance right now. So you do have a range of companies that are doing incredibly well, that have definitely benefited from the JobKeeper payments over the past 12 months. And then there are a range of companies that aren't doing as well. And then there's smaller businesses that have genuinely struggled over the past 12 months. And that is obviously going to have some impact upon job creation. Like I said before, though, I'm not going to read too much into full-time uh, employment declining in March simply because we have seen such strong full-time job creation in the, the previous five months. And I think that, you know, the data from month to month can be very volatile, particularly when you do break it down into full-time and part-time employment. And so often it is useful to sort of view it over a longer time period, whether that be a few months or, or six-month period, and you get a sort of better idea about what the the overall trend is for, for full-time and part-time employment. And when I do that, I think it's clear to me that full-time job creation has been pretty strong for a while now. Now, the $64 question is what happens with uh, now that JobKeeper has been uh, taken away and how will that affect future numbers? I mean, obviously, it's not affecting the March numbers, but it will affect it uh, further on, in uh, possibly in May and June. Yeah, so we, we expect the impact of JobKeeper to show up um, in the April d- data as well as in the in the May data. So the labour force survey usually takes place in the first uh, week or two of the month. Um, so when the April figures come out, it'll basically be a snapshot of the first half of April. Um, and that will capture some impact of um, JobKeeper because JobKeeper finished on the 28th of, of March. But some of the impact won't be felt until May or potentially even June. Now, there's a lot of speculation about what the impact is going to be. There's been a lot of estimates for, for job losses and some pretty sizable job losses at that. We've seen estimates of 100,000 jobs being lost, 200,000 jobs being lost. You know, we, we, don't, we don't really know what the, the impact is going to be because this is a situation where we are pulling an unprecedented amount of fiscal support from an economy at, at one time. And we know that a lot of businesses have relied upon that money to keep their heads afloat throughout the, the pandemic. And so removing that money could prove highly disruptive to their operations and potentially lead to job losses. There's also some people who have been receiving JobKeeper um, throughout the pandemic but haven't necessarily been working. And so those people are likely to become re- reclassified as unemployed once those, those payments stop. So there is likely to be some degree of job losses, but I'm, I'm reasonably optimistic about our ability to absorb the impact of, of JobKeeper finishing and continuing to grow reasonably strongly over the second half of this year. Okay. Now, the uh, other big question is, what does this do for the RBA? I mean, the RBA has been saying that, you know, they're not going to they're going to keep interest rates uh, at their present rate until 2024, but uh, will these numbers change anything? It's an interesting situation for the Reserve Bank right now. So to put this into perspective, the unemployment rate is currently 5.6%, but the Reserve Bank didn't think we'd get to 5.5% until uh, the middle of next year. So we're about 15 months ahead of schedule at this point in time, and you've got to think that that's going to have some impact upon the Reserve Bank's thinking. Now, the Reserve Bank has made it pretty clear that they're not going to raise rates until inflation consistently reaches their target of 2 to 3%. You know, they're in pretty firm on that commitment. The question is, 
when is that likely to be achieved? Now, the Reserve Bank has said previously they don't think it's going to happen before 2024, but the sheer speed of the recovery thus far does suggest that there might be um, some sort of upside to that, that if unemployment, if the unemployment rate does continue to decline at a reasonable clip, if we can get it below 5%, then that might facilitate stronger uh, wage growth and higher inflation, um, well ahead of what the, the Reserve Bank um, expects. But those, those inflation figures are the key. I mean, the, the Reserve Bank has made it clear that they're going to base rate hikes on actual achieved inflation rather than their inflation forecasts. So we need to see inflation increase before we, we see an increase in the cash rate. Well, that's interesting because uh, the CBA is actually saying they're expecting unemployment to fall to 4.7%, that is below 5%, by the end of 2022. Well, that would be an excellent achievement. I mean, we haven't been that low since before the, the global financial crisis. Um, we have, for much of the last decade, struggled to get the unemployment rate below 5%. Um, it's been something that we just haven't been able to achieve. And uh, look, if CPA uh, is, is correct, I think that that would be uh, wonderful. And if that is achieved, then it is likely that uh, wage growth will pick up uh, from its very low levels towards something that uh, we're, we're more accustomed to. And certainly inflation would be um, quite a bit higher than, than it currently is. Whether a 4.7% unemployment rate is sufficient to get us sort of consistently within that 2 to 3% inflation band, well, I'm not sure, but it will, will certainly help us on the, on the road to achieving that. Well, it would have to, surely it would have to be consistently around 4.7% for some time, for a few months, maybe. Yeah, I mean, th there's a lot of speculation right now about you know, what level the unemployment rate has to get down to before we can get wage growth above 3% and inflation consistently within that 2 to 3% band. 4.5% has been thrown out as sort of a guide on that front, 4.7% um, not being too far away from that. We have in the past got down to 5%. We really haven't seen much of a pickup in, in wages and inflation. So there's obviously a lot of uncertainty about how uh, the wage environment, the inflation environment will uh, respond to lower unemployment. But we, we do know that you know once you do get down to these really low levels and the labour market does become quite tight, but skill shortages emerge and, and businesses are forced to, to pay more for staff, and that ultimately leads to higher wage growth and higher inflation. Well, we'll see what's ahead. And Callum Pickering, thank you very much for your time. And thank you, Leon. So what's happening in the news? Well, consumers around the world have stockpiled an extra $5.4 trillion of savings since the coronavirus pandemic began and are becoming increasingly confident about the economic outlook, paving the way for a strong rebound in spending as businesses reopen. Households around the globe accumulated the excess, defined as additional savings compared with the 2019 spending pattern and equating to more than 6% of global gross domestic product by the end of the first quarter of this year, according to estimates by credit rating agency Moody's. And booming global consumer confidence suggests shoppers will be willing to spend again as soon as shops, bars and restaurants reopen when restrictions to control the spread of the virus are eased. In the first quarter of this year, the Conference Board Global Consumer Confidence Index hit its highest level since records began in 2005, with significant uplifts in all regions of the world. And Prime Minister Scott Morrison has announced next month's budget will include a further $539.2 million of government investment in new clean hydrogen and carbon capture use and storage products. This comes ahead of this week's summit on climate convened by US President Joe Biden, which Morrison will address overnight on Thursday.
The virtual summit of some 40 leaders will have two sessions of two hours spread over two days. The breakdown of the funding is $275.5 million to accelerate the development of four additional clean hydrogen hubs in regional areas and implement a clean hydrogen certification scheme and $263.7 million to support the development of carbon capture, use and storage projects and hubs. Hydrogen hubs are where users, producers and exporters are located in the same region, aimed at maximising the use of and investment in hydrogen. Potential areas for the hubs include the Latrobe Valley in Victoria, Darwin, the Northern Territory, the Pilbara in Western Australia, Gladstone in Queensland, the Hunter Valley in New South Wales, Bell Bay in Tasmania and the Eyre Peninsula in South Australia. And the remarkable recovery in Superfund's performance continues with another strong month of returns despite a slower vaccine rollout than many had hoped for and some regulatory uncertainty around the use of some vaccines. According to Super Ratings data, the median balance option rose an estimated 2% in March, while the median growth option rose an estimated 2.4%, and the median capital stable option rose an estimated 0.9%. Over the 2020-2021 financial year to date, the median balance option returned 12.2%, reflecting the strength and speed of the post-pandemic recovery, which extended through to the end of the March quarter. And research house Champ West says super funds are racing towards double-digit returns for the financial year after riding investment markets over the past three months to lock in a 3.1% gain. According to Champ West, the median growth fund returned 12.2% for the first nine months of the year and is up more than 2.2% already this month. And the best bank in Australia is headquartered in the Netherlands and the big four failed to even make the top 10 according to a new report. The Forbes World's Best Banks list has shown ING Group, which is based in Amsterdam, is the number one bank in Australia. Forbes, in partnership with market research firm Statista, surveyed over 43,000 customers around the world for their opinions on their current and former banking relationships. Banks were rated on general satisfaction and key attributes like trust, fees, digital services and financial advice. ING Group took out the top spot for Australia, followed by little-known Newcastle Permanent Building Society in second place and even lesser-known Greater Bank in third. And the order of the top ten are ING Group, number one, Newcastle Permanent Building Society, number two, Greater Bank, number three, Heritage Bank, number four, Beyond Bank, number five, HSBC Holdings at number six, Bendigo Bank at number seven, Bank SA at number eight, Suncourt nine, and People's Choice Credit Union at number ten. Combank only just missed out, coming in at number 11. NAB is number 16. ANZ is in 18th position. And Westpac didn't even make the list. And the hospitality sector is demanding the Morrison government introduce a 12-month COVID recovery worker visa as critical staff shortages of up to 30% force businesses to reduce opening hours or close altogether. The push for a special visa which would be paid for by the recipient, comes as the Accommodation Association reveals its hotel and resort operators lost $5 billion in room revenue across Melbourne, Sydney, Perth, Brisbane, Adelaide, Hobart, Canberra and the Gold Coast in the year to February. Melbourne hotels suffer the biggest hit, with a $1.4 billion loss in room revenue. Analysis conducted for the peak body by AHS Advisory also shows that the recovery from the COVID-19 pandemic for the tourism accommodation sector will take at least four years. The hospitality and accommodation industries have nominated labour shortages as their biggest barrier to their revival after the coronavirus sparked a mass exodus of 200,000 foreign students, backpackers and skilled visa holders. 
The hospitality sector has lost 100,000 jobs and there's been a 23% decline in full-time accommodation positions. And universities should repurpose underused buildings and spaces on their campuses or temporarily shut the door and turn out the lights as a way of saving money. A report from professional services firm JLL says universities need to turn to big data to fully understand how much and when campus facilities are used and must employ a flexible mindset in thinking about alternative uses and purposes. Among these are disposing of or repurposing underused facilities, creating flexible work and administrative spaces, and opening up specialist facilities such as drama theatres and music auditoriums for community use. And Australian iron ore miners are making bigger profits than during the resources boom a decade ago after they overcame labour shortages and weather disruptions to collectively raise exports just as iron ore prices are surging. Confirmation that the biggest iron ore exporter, Rio Tinto, had made its most productive start to a year since 2018 means Australia's top five iron ore exporters sold more into the bumper prices of the past three months than in the same period of last year. The export boost came as the recovery of iron ore supply from Brazil was weaker than expected and as Chinese demand in the March quarter was described by Rio as being even stronger than the record level set last year. The iron ore price of $181.80 per tonne on Monday was the highest since September 2015-2011 when the Australian dollar was above parity with the US currency. Shuram Partners analyst Peter O'Connor said iron ore miners' profit margins were now much greater than during that, that boom because a range of costs, including the cost of paying wages in Australian dollars, was effectively lower. And Galaxy Resources and Oracoba are merging in a deal that will create one of the world's largest producers of lithium, a key commodity used in batteries for electric vehicles and other clean energy products. Financial terms involve Oracoba acquiring all of the shares in Galaxy. Galaxy shareholders will receive 0.569 Oracoba shares for mm-hmm. each of their own stock. Based on the company's closing share prices on, on Friday, the combined company will have a market value of $3.96 billion. Oracoba shareholders will own 54.2% of the combined group, and Galaxy shareholders will own the remaining 45.8%. And Crown Resorts is weighing an unsolicited proposal for funding to buy all or some of James Packer's shares in the casino group. The $3 billion indicative offer from Oak Tree Capital made on behalf of an unnamed third company will provide a $3 billion funding commitment so the casino company can buy shares owned by James Packer through his holding company, Consolidated Press Holdings. CPH is Crown's largest shareholder with a current stake of 37% in Crown, valued at just under $3 billion at Crown's last share price of $11.92. Crown's board has not yet formed a view on the Oak Tree proposal and will now begin a review process, but any selective buyback of Crown shares held by CPH would be subject to shareholder approval. The funding offer comes amid a protracted negotiation for an $8 billion full takeover Crown Resorts by US private equity company Blackstone, setting the stage for a potential face-off between the US giants. Mr Packer tried to negotiate an exit from the company in 2019. He pitched Crown to Las Vegas Wynn Resorts, but when that failed, he tried to sell down a 19.9% stake to Hong Kong casino Melco Resorts, a move that sparked the New South Wales inquiry that found Crown unfit to hold a casino licence in the state. And consulting giant KPMG received almost 100 workplace complaints between 2014 and 19, with allegations of bullying and sexual harassment growing or 
remain steady over that period, raising questions about how widespread the conduct is and what the firm is doing to address it. More than half of the 92 complaints over the period related to a growing number of bullying allegations against senior staff and partners, while the number of sexual harassment complaints made mainly against junior staff has remained steady. There were 27 bullying complaints against senior staff and partners, with the number growing from 6 in 2014 to 11 in 2018, while the number of sexual harassment complaints has ranged from between 2 and 5 annually during these years. This type of information has never been made public and provides the first indication of the level of and type of complaints over time that are made within a large professional services firm. The rate of complaints equates to roughly 1 per 500 staff per year. It is not clear how this compares because there's no readily available data from other professional service firms. A 2018 national survey found that 39% or 2 in 5 women had experienced sexual harassment in the workplace over the past 5 years. And James Mawinney, the founder of former Dunk Island owning investment outfit Mayfair 101, has been banned from raising funds for 20 years. The 37-year-old entrepreneur also cannot partake in marketing financial products following a ruling in the Federal Court on Monday. The Federal Court found Mawinney acted with total disregard for the corporations and ASIC acts and that his contraventions are of a very serious kind and warrant a very substantial period of restraint. The Federal Court's suspension on Mawinney is less harsh than a permanent ban sought by the Australian Securities Investments Commission. Yet ASIC's backup position was a ban of not less than 15 years years, and the suspension also comes after Mr Mawini attempted to defend the lawsuit and protested loudly against the regulator's actions. His Mayfair outfit had raised more than $210 million from people, including elderly retirees and parents hoping to build nest eggs for children, in a mix of investment seminars, newspaper advertising and Instagram endorsements from B-grade celebrities. The hype was crowned in 2019 with a purchase of Dunk Island, which came crashing down last year when it was repossessed after failure to pay for the tropical North Queensland island. Investors are now sweating with all their money frozen. Mawinnie will be 57 when he's able to rattle the money tin again, but for most of his investors, they'll never get a second chance. The eight victims who testified as part of the federal court case range from ages 29 to 84. Their nest eggs have been all but decimated after they invested hundreds of thousands of dollars into schemes they believed were stable and offered a slightly better rate than a term deposit. The judgment was scathing of Mawinnie, who had blamed everyone but himself for the collapse of his various schemes. But it also showed how Mawinnie had tried to stay one step ahead of the regulators by reorganising and renaming his schemes when they closed in on him. Mayfair 101 was last month found guilty of making false, misleading and deceptive statements while advertising its investment products. A penalty hearing in that case is scheduled for July. And the COVID-19 tailwinds that underpin record sales growth at hardware and homeware retailers could continue for years, says Angus MacDonald, chief executive of Australia's largest specialty barbecue retailer, Barbecues Galore. Like Bunnings might attend Harvey Norman and JB Hi-Fi, barbecues galore benefited from the pandemic as consumers spent more time dining and entertaining at home and redirected the $60 billion they would have otherwise spent on international travel fixing up their homes. Mr McDonald believes these trends are likely to prevail for another year or two and combined with strong growth in new home approvals should underpin continued sales growth. While demand in some sectors such as furniture and electronics has started to taper off after record gains in the September quarter, barbecue galore's same source sales rose well in excess of 20% in the March quarter and we're up more than 20% in the financial year to date. Barbecues Galore has 88 company-owned and franchise stores and accounts for about 21% of the barbecue market. It also sells barbecue accessories, outdoor furniture, braziers, smokers 
and wood-fired heaters. Over the past 20 months, Mr McDonald has reset the business by closing eight underperforming stores, reducing floor space and opening new stores between 500 square metres and 1,000 square metres where it can display a curated range of products and achieve better sales per square metre. And the manufacture of future COVID-19 vaccine boosters and annual flu shots could be supported by early-stage plans for domestic production of mRNA vaccines in Australia. Preliminary discussions and the development of a business case are underway as the Morrison government faces continued pressure over supply problems related to overseas-produced COVID-19 vaccines. A regional manufacturing hub for mRNA vaccine technology products would give Australia capability to make vaccines like the Pfizer and Moderna of COVID-19 locally, strengthening the response to future public health emergencies. Talks about new capability have included representatives of CSL, Pfizer and other drug giants, with consulting giant McKinsey & Co. already involved in the business case process. CSL is manufacturing the AstraZeneca viral vector vaccine in Melbourne and could manufacture other vaccine technologies in a new $800 million facility being built at Tullamarine for subsidiary Sequiris. The new facility will be focused on cell-based pandemic and seasonal influenza vaccines, antivenom and Q-fever vaccine production. Flexibility for other technologies is not yet in place. CSL is considering mRNA technology with flu jabs, but Chief Scientific Officer Andrew Nash said the company did not currently have capability to manufacture mRNA drugs in Australia. An afterplay is exploring listing its shares in the United States as the world's biggest economy overtakes Australia to become its biggest market and it attracts more global shareholders. The buy now pay later operator on Tuesday said it was working with external advisors to explore options for a US listing, as it also said underlying sales had jumped 104% in annual terms during the March quarter. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Dean Foley, founder and CEO of Barrier Mail, Australia's Indigenous Business Accelerator and world leader in Indigenous entrepreneurship. We'll be talking about the difference between Western and Indigenous entrepreneurship. And I'll be talking to Comsec Chief Economist Craig James about what's ahead in the market for the week. In the meantime, you can catch me on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.